Hosea chapter 2. Birmingham, Birmingham is, I think, uh, I'm to be corrected, I think it's Britain's or England's uh, second largest city. Uh, Maybe Manchester, I'm not sure if it's Manchester or Birmingham. London, of course, is the capital, as you know, of England. Uh, and uh, I think uh, Birmingham or Manchester, I think Birmingham is probably the second largest or second city in, in England. And uh, a, a couple of years ago, a, a giant billboard appeared in the city center there in Birmingham with this message on it. It's a pity we haven't got the overhead, never mind. <laughs> but this is how it, re- it reads. To my dear husband, Mark, and my best friend, Shelley, you are the most despicable, deceitful people I have ever met. I know what you did, and I'm disgusted. I've changed the locks, Mark, burnt your clothes, and emptied our joint account to pay for this poster. You deserve each other, Jane. <laughs> well, that's one way to deal with betrayal. Revenge. There are plenty, example, plenty of examples of that, aren't there? The newspapers are, are full of that sort of thing. You know, the, the, the wife who sells her husband's Porsche on eBay for a dollar. Or uh, a few years ago now, the wife of the Czech Prime Minister who discovered that her husband had admitted to an affair with the deputy leader of the Czech Parliament on primetime TV. And so she decided to become a candidate in the election and run against her husband. And I'm not sure who won. But, but we recognize that scenario, don't we? Betrayal. Revenge, public humiliation, and scandal. It's the storyline of of many a TV soap opera. And uh, sad to say, it's the subject matter of many a TV reality show, isn't it? And, And this story of Hosea and Gomer has all the same ingredients to it, doesn't it? See, Hosea chapter 2 is every bit as shocking as that billboard in Birmingham in the city center. But there's a twist to the story, as I hope you're going to see. So let's take a look at it. I want you to say say three things in this chapter, three things in this chapter, in this story uh, tonight. The chapter begins, you'll notice, with a desperate plea from a loving husband. But then, surprisingly, in the middle of the chapter, a door of hope is opened for a hopeless sinner. And a day of restoration is promised at the end of the chapter for God's people. So those are the three things. A desperate plea, a door of hope, and a day of restoration. So the chapter begins with this desperate plea. Look at it there in verse 2. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her. The, the, The ESV says, plead with her. Plead with your mother. Plead with her, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. Let her remove that adulterous look from her face. One of the things you should never do if you're a parent is to communicate to your spouse through your children. That's not a healthy thing to do. Especially if it's a dysfunctional relationship. Especially if what you're going to say is something hurtful or harmful. Go and tell your mother. Go and ask your father not to do that. You know the kind of thing. It's never a good idea to draw your kids into a conflict with your spouse. And yet it happens all too often, doesn't it? And the kids are the ones who suffer, of course. 
What, what follows in these verses is what no child should ever hear about their mother. This is not PG rated. Look at verses 2 to 4. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day that she was born. I'll make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they're the children of adultery. Do you get the message? If she doesn't change her ways, she's going to be publicly humiliated. Imagine reading the intimate details of your parents' marital life in the Sunday newspapers. Or having the whole story uh, exposed on Facebook. This marriage has broken down, hasn't it? Tell your mother, Hosea says. He's not even they're not on speaking terms anymore. They're not speaking to one another. Tell your mother, Hosea says. She's abandoned the marriage. Look at verse 5. She says, I'm off to see my lovers. They'll, this is a paraphrase from Eugene Peterson in the message. I'm off to see my lovers, verse 5. They'll wine and dine me, dress and caress me, perfume and adorn me. And look at verse 13. I will punish her for the days she burnt incense to the bowels. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. Now, Hopefully you can notice something here. Clearly this, this isn't one story. It's two stories in one, isn't it? Can, can't you see that here? This isn't just the story of Hosea and Gomer, tragic as that is. It's the story of God and Israel, isn't it? That's obvious. Gomer's unfaithfulness, Gomer's promiscuity, epitomizes Israel's apostasy. That's obvious as you read through this chapter. You notice the language, for example, there in verses 11 to 13. It talks about, you saw it on the screen, it talks about celebrations and, and yearly festivals and, and new moons and Sabbath days and, and appointed feasts. See, we're not just talking here about Gomer. We're talking about a whole religious system. This is Israel, isn't it? This, the Lord has done a pretty good job for Israel getting her out of Egypt, carrying them through the wilderness, bringing them into Canaan. But that was, that was a long time ago now. That was centuries ago, in fact. And now they're in the land. They're living in Canaan. And, and what they need is provision and plenty. And, and that's what the Canaanite fertility gods offered. That's what the Baals were all about. In fact, it's, it's possible, indeed, it's highly probable that Gomer was a cult prostitute at the shrine of one of those Baals, one of those Canaanite gods. And Baal worship involved all sorts of cruelties, despicable things, unmentionable things. Baal worship also involved having sex with prostitutes. Now, now let me pause to, to, just for a moment to apply this. You see, this, is a, this isn't just about... Gomer and Hosea. This isn't just about Israel. This is about you and me. Because we all do this. We all turn from God, our maker, to worship other gods, don't we? Just like Israel did. We all go chasing after other gods. It's not just Old Testament Israelites who do that. 
Augustine uh, calls it concupiscence. It's a big word. You can look it up in the dictionary afterwards if you want to. I'm not sure exactly what that means. I think it means something like this, a, a, a disorder of the desires, an infection of the desires. That's what it is. You might remember if you've ever read the Narnia stories by C.S. Lewis that in one of those stories, uh, the witch gives Edmund some enchanted Turkish delight. Do you remember that scene? And, and Edmund says, anyone who's tasted that Turkish delight would want more and more and more of it and would even, if allowed, go on eating more and more of it until they kill themselves. That's us. That's, that's human nature. That's Gomer, isn't it? That's Israel, too, chasing after her lovers, craving other gods. Can't get enough of it. And it's you and it's me as well. The great mistake that we make, you see, in reading this story in our Bibles is to identify with Hosea. But it's Gomer we need to identify with, not Hosea. You're not Hosea. You're Gomer. You're the unfaithful ones. You're the promiscuous ones. You're the ones who've chased after other gods. Isn't that right? When we're honest with ourselves? Isn't that exactly what we do? Paul describes it in, uh, in Philippians, writing to the, uh, that lovely little church in Philippi in chapter 3 of Philippians. Uh, he, he says this, I've often told you before, and I tell you again, he says, even with tears in my eyes, that many, and he's talking to professing Christians now, he's, he's addressing a church. He says, I've told you before, and I'm telling you again with tears in my eyes, that many... Many in this church at Philippi, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. What does it mean to live as an enemy of the cross of Christ? It simply means this, my friends. It means to go on Monday through Saturday living your life as though Jesus had never died. That's what it means. And he describes that sort of lifestyle for us there, doesn't he? In Philippians chapter 3, he says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And they glory in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Do you see what he's saying? Their God is their stomach. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean that they like their food too much. It probably includes that. But it means much more than that. These bodily appetites and desires that we have as human beings, as, as creatures made by God, our bodily appetites and desires, they're meant to serve us. They're good things. But these appetites and desires that are meant to serve us, sex, food, companionship, all good things in the right place, instead of serving us, they take over, don't they? And they dominate us. I mean, if you don't believe me, just look at your TV guide on any night of the week. Just look, look what's on your TV any night of the week, if you don't believe me. These things, these, these good gifts from God, which are meant to serve us and accompany us through life and, and f be for our benefit, these things have got into the driving seat. Isn't that right? There's a, there's a lovely little cartoon in, in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter uh, 10 of Ecclesiastes. Solomon's an old man now, and he's, he's, a, he's looking back on a long life, and, and, and to be honest, on a wasted life, because Solomon blew it big time, didn't he? He started well but then he chased after other gods. And, he, and he's looking back there in Ecclesiastes at a, at a long and wasted life, and he says, he says, as an old man now reflecting on things, he says, I've seen a few things in my time. I've seen slaves on horseback 
while princes go on foot like slaves. That's an interesting observation to make, isn't it? It's like a cartoon. Imagine, you know, if you saw, the, uh, if you saw a Rolls Royce coming down uh, Macquarie Street with the governor in the driving seat and her chauffeur in the back seat, uh, that would attract your attention, wouldn't it? It's the wrong way around. That's not how it's meant to be. And yet that's how it is, says Solomon. The, the very things that are meant to serve us have become our masters. And so the question is, by way of application uh, tonight to you, is this, who's in the driving seat of your life? Who's in control? Is it you? Or is it your lusts? See, instead of worshipping the God who made us, we're, we're driven by our lusts. We chase after other gods to give us a, a sense of significance and worth, to give us security. We don't, we don't trust God to give us security, the God who made the, the universe and holds it together by the word of his power. We don't trust him to, to look after us. Instead, we, we've got to have money in the bank, haven't we? We trust in money, in mammon. We chase after other gods. Joy Davidman, who was, uh, she was married to C.S. Lewis, and she wrote a little commentary on the Ten Commandments. And uh, in her little book on the Ten Commandments, it's called Smoke on the Mountain, if you want to read it, she says this, the real horror of idols is not merely that they give us nothing, but that they take away from us even that which we have. And then she gives some examples. So, for example, she says, the house devours the house-proud housewife. What is a house-proud housewife? It's a, it's a woman whose house is her God. The office rots the executive with ulcers. <laughs> the man who lives for his work, never at home for his family. His work is his God. The office rots the executive with ulcers. And canned entertainment leaves us incapable of entertaining ourselves. But the real challenge of this chapter really comes to us, not just as creatures in God's world, but as God's people, because Hosea is, is God's prophet, bringing a message from God to God's people. And so this is a question, this is an application, especially for us, uh, uh, those of us who call ourselves God's people especially for church. See, just as Israel, back in the days of Jeroboam II, saw the Lord as good for salvation, but not much good for anything else. He was their savior. Um, he brought them out of Egypt. He brought them into Canaan. They knew the song of Moses and the Lamb. They could sing that song. They loved singing that song. It's one of their favorite songs. <laughs> yeah, he was their savior, but he wasn't their Lord. Now that they're in the land, worshiping God on a Sunday, but living for the gods of this world during the week. Isn't that right? Yes, we believe in God, but he's not really that relevant to my everyday week. Calling Jesus our Savior, singing songs to him as Savior, but denying him access to the rest of our lives. Isn't that how it is sometimes for us? 
Yes, Jesus is my Savior, but when it comes to work, or study, or family, or finances, well, he doesn't really get a say, does he? The last thing we want to know is, is what the Bible says. We're more interested in what uh, our peers think. Or what the company demands of us. And how does God feel about that? Well, you don't have to guess, do you? That's why this book is in our Bibles. That's why this story is here in the Old Testament. You can't read it without feeling the, the raw, grinding emotion, the jealous love of a spurned husband for his runaway wife. That's how God feels about us. And that brings me then to the second thing I want you to see here. A door of hope. It's there in the middle of the chapter. It all, it all sounds so desperately hopeless, doesn't it, this story of Hosea and Gomer. Uh, and, and when you begin to read this chapter and you listen to the plea of this desperate husband, look at verse 13. God says, I will punish her for the day she burnt incense to the bowels. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, and now she's going to have it. You see that verse there? Therefore, I'm now, now I'm going to... What's he going to do? What, what, I mean, how would you finish that sentence? I mean, surely this must be the end of the road for Hosea and Gomer, don't you think? Surely now he's going to divorce her. Isn't that what you'd expect? Well, but look at it. Look at it. Look at verse 14. Look at how it goes on. Therefore, he says, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Verse 14. Here's what I'm going to do, says Hosea, and this is Eugene P Peterson's paraphrase. Here's what I'm going to do, he says. I'm going to start all over again. I'm going to take her back into the wilderness where we had our first date. And I'll court her, and I'll woo her, and I'll give her bouquets of roses. <laughs> That's how Peterson paraphrases it in the message. Matt Chandler, who uh, he's uh, one of the leading guys in, in the Acts 25 network. Is it Acts 25? Acts 26? 29, of course it is. How many chapters are there in the book of Acts? Yeah, 28, so it's Acts 29, yeah. <laughs> He's one of the leading guys in the Acts 29 church planning network. He, he tells this story, you may have heard this story before, but it's a powerful story, it's a true story. He tells a story of how when he was at college, he sat next to a young woman at church. She was 26 years of age. She was a single mum trying to make ends meet trying to, to balance raising a child on her own and, and getting a, a university degree. He says that, that he and some of his friends began sharing the gospel with her, and that they would occasionally they'd babysit uh, to give her a bit of a break. And then she got invited to what she was led to believe was a concert, to hear a friend play in a band. Of course, it turned out to be a Christian meeting. Why do we do that to people? <laughs> so dishonest, isn't it? It's not treating people with respect when we do that. The guy up front said he was going to talk about sex. He took a red rose, smelled it, showed how pretty it was. Then he threw it out into the audience, into the crowd, and, and told them to pass it around. Smell this rose, he said. I want you to smell it and touch it and feel the texture in it. Apparently there are about a thousand people in the audience. And then, says Chandler, he launched into a tirade. 
It was one of the worst, most horrific tirades than what sex is and, and isn't that I've ever sat through. And I'm thinking to myself with Kim, this, this young mum, single mum, sitting here there beside me. I'm thinking to myself, what are you doing? And, and as he wrapped up the talk, he asked, where's my rose? And some kid brought the rose back to the platform. It was broken, of course. The petals were broken. And lifting it up for all to see, he shouts out at the top of, the at the top of his voice, now, who would want this? Who would want this? And Chandler says, anger welled up within me, and I wanted to shout out, Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants that rose. That's the gospel, isn't it? Jesus wants that rose, that broken rose. Because Jesus came into this world, and while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And God made him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin. All our, in other words, all our sin and our uncleanness. And all our distorted emotions, and all our rebellion, and all our shame. Because it's not just guilt that we've got a problem with. It's shame, isn't it? The shame of what we've done. And, and all of that, Jesus takes upon himself. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned. He stood, he, the innocent one, the beautiful one, the perfect one, in my place, bearing shame, the shame of my sin. I don't want people to know what I'm capable of, but he knows. Not only does he carry the guilt, but he takes the shame of it as well upon himself. Isn't that the gospel? You see, that's the difference between moralism and Christianity, isn't it? Moralism says, pick yourself up, uh, clean yourself up, get your act together, and then maybe God will accept you. That's not Christianity. It's a million miles different to Christianity. What does the gospel say? The gospel says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners like Gomer, hopeless, helpless, messed up, driven by demons, controlled by our own disordered desires, that's when Jesus died for us. And by his death on the cross, you and I are given a fresh start and a new beginning, aren't we? That's the gospel. Look at verse 15. God says, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Now, I need to explain that a little, just very quickly. The valley of Achor. Doesn't, probably doesn't mean much to anybody. But the valley of Achor is the valley that leads from the Jordan to the promised land. So you remember, you know, after, after they crossed the Jordan, they had this tremendous victory at Jericho when the walls came tumbling down. Remember? <laughs> they marched around and the walls came tumbling down. It was a stupendous victory. But what you may not realize is that, and if you read the book of Joshua, you'll see it, almost immediately after that, they... They suffered a humiliating defeat at a place called Ai because of the sin of Achan. And they were almost wiped out. And now God, promised, God is promising, you see, to turn heartbreak valley, if you like, 
into a place of hope. He's promising to turn defeat into victory. He's promising to make the valley of Achor a door of hope for his people. Isn't that what he does? He breaks the power of counsel sin and sets the prisoner free. Isn't that what he does? But notice it is a door that you have to go through. You have to go through a door, don't you? Jesus said, I'm the door. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, rescued, he will be saved, and will come in and go out and find pasture. But you have to go through that door. And I want to ask you, my friends, this afternoon, have you gone through this door? Have you entered into all that God has for you in Christ? Or are you, are you still on the wrong side of the door, in the valley of Achor? In the place of defeat, driven by your own desires, carried away by your own cravings, into the arms of someone other than Jesus? Which side of the door are you? God promises to open a door of hope for his people here. But then lastly, even beyond and above that, not only does he promise to open a door of hope in the valley of Achor, in the place of defeat and humiliation, because that's where we often are, but he promises to open a door of hope right there in Heartbreak Valley, where we're struggling and where we're defeated. He promises to open a door of hope through the cross of Jesus so that we might go in and go out and find pasture, so that we might have freedom, so that we may have life for the capital L. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life to the full. But not only that, it's even bigger than that, and even it's, it's, it's cosmic. Look, look, at, look, at, look at the way the chapter ends. Not only does he promise to open a door of hope, but do you notice how the chapter ends? He promises a day of restoration, doesn't he? Look, look at these verses there, and they're, they're, I'll, just, I'll just pick out one phrase. In that day, in that day, in that day. Oh, there is a PowerPoint. <laughs> Verse 16, in that day, in that day, verse 8, in that day, verse 21. See, people talk about the lost tribes of Israel, don't they? We're talking about the northern kingdom now. And, and people talk about the ten tribes, the lost tribes of Israel. And, and very soon, now after Hosea's day, uh, the ten tribes of Israel, uh, Judah's down in the south, but the ten tribes of Israel will be carried off by the Assyrians into oblivion. But is that the end of the story? It can't be, can it? Not when you read these verses. There's a day coming, God says, and in that day, declares the Lord, verse 16, you will call me my husband. You'll, you'll no longer call me master. I'll remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. There's a day coming when the, the relationship is going to be restored and these false gods are going to be removed. And in that day, verse 18, I'll make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land, so that all may, live down, may lie down in safety. <laughs> in that day, it shall be no longer, you know, nature red in tooth and claw as it is now. <laughs> in that day, the lion will lie down with the lamb. 
And he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. That's the basis of a healthy relationship, isn't it? Love and compassion and righteousness and justice. And, and you will acknowledge the Lord in that day, he says. And in that day, verse 21, I'll respond to the skies and they'll respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and they'll respond to Jezreel. I'll plant her for myself in the land. I'll show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I say to those called, not my people. You are my people. <laughs> and they'll say, you are my God. And the covenant is now renewed. And there's a new heavens and a new earth. And harmony and shalom in the universe. See, the, there's wave after wave of good news here. In the Old Testament, in every chapter of Hosea, you'll find this. Wave after wave of blessing. The tide isn't going out for Israel. Ultimately, it's coming in, isn't it? And this marriage, which looks so dicey at the moment here, this marriage which has been so pulled apart by sin, will ultimately be restored, never to be broken again. This marriage, which appears to be on the rocks, ultimately will be restored. C.S. Lewis captures it better than anyone in that famous essay of his, The Weight of Glory. You probably know this quote. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the seaside. We are far too easily pleased, says C.S. Lewis. Aren't we? Far too easily pleased. Just chase after the, the passing, trivial things of this world and this life far too easily pleased when God is offering him, us himself in the person of his son I'm the door Jesus says I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly I'm the door if anyone enters by me that's, that's what needs to happen you have to come to Jesus you have to put your trust in him Anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. 